This is the Water Cooler Podcast, coming to you from the Menzies Research Centre in Sydney. Hello, I'm Nick Cater and I'm Executive Director of the Menzies Research Centre. The rise of transgender activism, amplified through the medium of Twitter, has turned any kind of discussion about gender into a minefield. Author J.K. Rowling now finds herself being accused of writing a transphobic narrative after she insisted on making a distinction between biological women and transgendered biological men. In a public policy think tank like ours, it's tempting to steer well clear of this uh, fractious debate. But I don't think we can. The transgender ideology is having an impact on public policy and on the right of free speech. Senator Claire Chandler spoke recently about who should and should not be able to participate in women's sports. If you saw or listened to my interview with her recently, you may well agree that she makes her point sensitively and reasonably. Nevertheless, she now finds herself answering a complaint from Equal Opportunity Tasmania. The complaint is utterly fallacious, as you'd imagine, but these things end up taking chunks out of your day. You could be spending doing something more valuable. The long and the short of it is that as public policymakers, we need to get a handle on the moral complexities of these discussions or risk conceding ground to the liberal forces who choose to turn issues of sexual identity into a political battering ram. Madeleine Cairns is a staff writer at National Review who's contributed some intelligent and courageous discussion on this and other topics. She joins me today from New York. Madeline, welcome to Water Cooler. Thank you very much. Delighted to be here. I've been reading your pieces in, in the National Review about the new feminism, I think, the feminism on the right, if we can call it that. We might develop that thought later. But, but first, to how you came to be in New York. You're originally from Scotland, from Glasgow. What took you to New York? I went over to do a master's degree in journalism, which I did at New York University. And then I made the rather unusual transition from NYU into conservative media. So I came over in 2016, which was a very interesting year to be in America and also to be watching um, the aftermath of Brexit from a distance as well. Yeah, it was a very tumultuous year in many ways. It's an unusual career path, if I may say that. I mean, I think in Britain, as in Australia, as in the States, there's a big extension of the gap between left and right, that younger people, people under 35, more solidly left these days than they ever were, and certainly women, and and university-educated women. I mean, that's a big kind of hole for conservative centre-right parties around the world. What puts you on that side of politics? Basically, it's funny because I I didn't really think of myself as a conservative until I I, I really read into uh, what what I what I think is more kind of cultural conservatism and just like the anti ideological disposition uh, described by people like Roger Scruton or Michael Oakeshott. But to be honest with you, it was really a process of figuring out what I wasn't more than anything else, and I just found a lot of left wing assumptions, certainly on social issues, were really just very flawed and sometimes actually kind of hypocritical, you know, the calls to be compassionate and uh, respectful of difference and open-minded and tolerant and all those sorts of things, which I totally very much agree with, uh, just really only seemed to extend one way. And when I came came to the US, I, I didn't think I, I was a conservative, but, but being on campus and around very, very progressive people, I found that a lot of assumptions were made about the fact that I came from Europe, I came from Scotland, I must be very left wing. 
And I actually started my career at The Spectator in London. I was an intern there and I wrote a piece which the editor put on the cover, which was about my experiences at NYU as somebody who wasn't fully on board the progressive agenda. And really from there, people started to sort of say, oh, you're conservative. And I said, okay, if you say so. I mean, <laughs> what, does, what does that mean? I, I'm still working it out, but I do write for National Review, so maybe maybe that that's that's a settled matter. I don't know. Look, I, I share your um, discomfort, dare I say, with that word conservative. I've never considered myself a conservative, which might surprise some people who read my columns, but, uh, you know, I, I'm, yeah. I'm more of a liberal. I think a liberal in the Scottish sense, you know, in terms of Scottish enlightenment. Like you, I, I found myself on this side of politics philosophically more than anything through identifying yeah. what I wasn't. Yeah, no, I think I think that's exactly right. Let's talk about Scotland, the country that you, okay. you used to live in. You spoke about that sort of left-wing socialist kind of bent in the Scots. You know, it was always a Labour stronghold until quite recently. And now in the hands of the Scottish Nationalist Party, you're very much a sort of centre-left, wokish kind of government, aren't they? Yeah, very much so. And actually, I think a lot of that is a fairly recent development, not, not so much the, the left-wing thing, because obviously we had a, a rather violent reaction to Thatcherism in Scotland, and the Tories have certainly not done themselves any favours. I mean, I'm not I'm not a party Conservative by, by any stretch. But what is interesting is that there's now this rampant tribal nationalism. You know, you talk about the Scottish Enlightenment, and it's really, it's, re- it's very against how Scots have always been, which is open-minded, quite friendly, quite live and let live. Well, not always been. I mean, if you go way back to the pits, then maybe maybe not when we're running around in uh, blue paint and stuff. But actually, it really is a very, it's a very sad thing to see that we're going in this authoritarian direction. A lot of Scots are getting sucked into this because they've really just bought into the narrative. It's just a very quite straightforward narrative that your, your problems, our problems are not our fault or government's fault, they're Westminster's fault, and they will be solved if we cut that tie, which is a interesting argument and certainly not one without its merits. I, I'm not opposed to independence in principle, but I think if you look at the state of this government and you look at the mess they've made and incapable of doing anything, and a lot, a lot of that cannot be left on, you can't blame Westminster for that because if you look at we've had devolution for quite some time now, so you can't really blame everything on them, then actually you you realise that there's something very wrong with that narrative and, and the more interesting question becomes, well, why is it so appealing? It seems to me it's a sort of proxy argument, isn't it? I mean, it, it, the, the nationalism seems to be just a nice totem around which to congregate, but behind that is is a whole different agenda, don't you think? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, there's it's interesting, there's a book, called From Hollywood to Holyrood that talks about the resurgence of the Braveheart, the William Wallace thing, and how that's been deployed rather cynically for nationalist political ends. And actually, it is it is kind of like a culture of memes, because if, if you think about it, going back to this war, you know, in the 13th century or 12th century, it's a strange thing to do, because there's an obvious parallel here with the United Kingdom's relationship with the United States. And, you know, they had this war which is much more recent than our war of independence with the english and yet they don't see this historical feud with the english as a contemporary as an issue in contemporary politics it's kind of referred to 
uh, tongue-in-cheek, you know, oh, the English, they tried to, to tax us and, and we showed them. But actually in Scotland, it, it's been resurrected as, as signs that there's been this terrible oppression for hundreds of years. And of course, that's actually appropriating what happened in Ireland, which is very different, very different story. The Scottish and English Union has been a very successful one, actually, since 1707. And so you do kind of wonder what, what has happened to make this deep-rooted grievance so popular. And of course, you could get into all sorts of things with post-industrialism and Thatcherism and how that was received and the mistakes that conservative governments made and then the kind of erosion and collapse and the increasing irrelevance of the Labour Party. Or you could, you could put it down to like the decline of religion. There's some interesting things that people have said about the fact that the SNP is now like Scotland's religion, you know? And that religious impulse has not gone away and that it's just been transferred to the SNP. So there's all sorts of theories as to why it's been so successful. But I think the one thing you can be very clear on is that it's not the merits of the arguments because they, their policies are dreadful. And they're just, honestly, it's just, it's embarrassing. When I, sometimes I just like tap into what's going on in Scotland and I, I just, I cringe. It's, it's really, we're not doing ourselves proud. Yeah, I think we were inclined to treat this, what they, we've come to call woke, goodness knows why, what we call woke as, as a joke, uh, and now we realise it's more serious yeah. than that. First of all, it is true, the saying, go woke, go broke, is true. Woke governments tend to spend a lot and do services very badly. But it's also true, I think, I've noticed during the COVID-19 crisis, the rise in a sort of authoritarian, tyrannical streak in governments, uh, particularly on the left, we've seen that in here in Victoria, New Zealand and elsewhere. What about Scotland? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's incredible. There's, I, I was rather taken aback and thought it was kind of surreal to be seeing MSPs declare in Hollywood that now it is okay for grandchildren to, to hug their grandparents. And you think, what is going on? This, this micromanagement, this level of intervention. I mean, I will say that I do understand the, the logic of lockdown, but I, I think that in a free and liberal society, you, you do a lot of things by cooperation. You do a lot of things by asking people to cooperate. And most people are, I mean, in Europe, it's not like America where everybody thinks everything is, is potentially uh, their government trying to do them over. You know, here people are actually pretty compliant. So if you ask them to wear masks, they'll wear masks. But, but all this sort of reporting your neighbours to, to hotlines and, and uh, the police getting involved for things that really have nothing to do with the police. It really is, as you say, this authoritarian thing. And actually, quite apart from COVID, I have serious concerns about the current Scottish government in the way that they deal with, for example, free speech, with the way that they have relentlessly and aggressively tried to erode basic freedoms that you would expect in a liberal democracy. Uh, the latest one was a, was a bill introduced into Parliament which would uh, potentially result in seven years imprisonment for anybody who uh, offended, or is, I think it was the language was insulted or abused or, or something verbally abused, you know, one of these protected mi minorities. And that's just extraordinary. That's just absolutely extraordinary. I mean, I really think it hasn't got enough attention in the, the national and international press. I mean, if that bill passes, that... I, I don't think I could return home and, and do my job. <laughs> the things that I've said about issues such as transgenderism, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know. 
Well, you are, you're worrying me. Let's, let's, let's talk about it. You say it's not being talked about. Let's talk about it some more. So hate speech, the problem with that, of course, it can be defined as just about anything you want. Right. And uh, against protected minorities, well, that's all a bit arbitrary. But seven years in prison, uh, that, uh, that, I hadn't heard that. And that is troubling me a lot. Yeah. But, I mean, I think realistically, I think, I think that, the, that it's the threat of these things. If you know that the police might call you up and reprimand you or ask you why you had posted certain things on Twitter, why you had posted certain things on Facebook. What that actually does is it encourages a broader climate of self-censorship, which is really very damaging. It's very damaging. And actually, if anything, it, it causes more of the extremism that you're trying to prevent. You know, Brendan O'Neill has done great work on this, saying that actually the cure to genuine hate speech is more speech. Because these people, if they're able to actually voice things out, then the arguments are exposed for being bad, or if, if, there's, if they're not actually hate speech, then the merits of the argument are properly explored. But with everything just being shut down, shut down the, the conversation, then you do have these pockets of tribal reactionaries who will genuinely resort to hate because they're so fed up. And yet, I mean, it seems to me, I mean, we talk about one-party government in California and other places that seem to be dominated by parties of the left. It seems to me you've got that situation in Scotland now, right? I mean, what, what would oust, not Nicola Sturgeon, but what would oust the SNP? It's a great question. I mean, they just have this extraordinary stronghold. I think ultimately what's going to happen, and this is speculation I don't normally... <laughs> I think that we're going to, we're going to be independent soon, two to, two to five years, we'll be an independent country, we will be ruined. We'll be ruined by this because our, we, we just don't have the political competence or the economic security to make it work. And then there will be some great reaction to that and the SNP will lose their power. And if, if, we're, still a, if we're still a democracy at this point, <laughs> if, we're, if we're not a Euro-communist totalitarian state, then, then I think they'll, they'll be outed by their own failures and it will be a legacy of failure. But to be honest with you, I am sympathetic because I mean, you don't exactly look to Westminster and, and find yourself being inspired with confidence. Why, why should they trust the Tories? They've, they've just embarrassed themselves constantly. And actually, all this stuff we're talking about, the authoritarian thing and, and going to the left, I mean, that's all happening in Johnson's government as well, just in albeit inconsistent and different ways with different packaging. Sometimes I wonder if the two of them, Johnson and Sturgeon, are trying to outcompete over who can be who can be the most authoritarian. It's not very fun to watch when you're you're actually a British citizen. But no, it's not. You know, I mean, we've got our own problems here on that front. But um, you know, I mean, I suppose I just didn't see this coming in this form. I, I, it's obviously been accelerated by the process of lockdown, but I just don't know where this authoritarianism came from. I just wouldn't believe what some of the things that are happening here in Australia and indeed Britain, you know, the way the police are no longer citizens in uniform, they're enforcers, essentially enforcers of the diktats of government ministers and health officials. Right, yeah. And, and the, so, so there's, there's a hilarious thing going on with, with the police where the, the police show up in their, in their rainbow-clad gear to, to tell 
some 60 year old women that she can't tweet that women don't have penises but then when there's a riot going on or environmental protests or something like that they're just going to and, and people are damaging public property and so on and so forth they're just going to stand there with their little sticks and look you know, I just what is just pathetic isn't it I mean what is the what is the point of that <laughs> so look to, to New York where you live now and New York's had its own problems shall we say mm-hmm. what's it just give me a a snapshot of life in New York over the last six months? Well, I, I must confess that when this first happened, I actually fled to Virginia because I wasn't... In, actually, do you know what? I feel slightly vindicated by this decision because I thought to myself, you know, I'm not that worried about getting coronavirus personally, but uh, I am kind of worried about law and order breaking down. There's a there's a fantastic essay about New York by E.B. White, which is, is timeless. It was, I think it was written in the 40s, but it's called Here is New York. And he talks about how New York is always just like, just one inch away from mass hysteria. And it's always managed to avoid it. It's always managed to avoid it. And I thought, and I worried that this might be the final thing that just does it. And that we'd, we'd have chaos in the streets and break down law and order. And, and I just do not trust Cuomo or Bill de Blasio for obvious reasons. So I fled to a city with some friends in Virginia and was watching the scenes being reported uh, on Tucker Carlson's show and stuff. When I came back a couple of months ago, I realized it really is not that bad at all. It's, it's now they've flattened the curve and restaurants are opening up to, for outdoor eating and things like that. There is a semblance of normality and life here is, I imagine, just very similar to most cities right now which is just a shadow of its former self but certainly not not as much panic and tension uh, Mm. in the air. You've been writing I think some very brave pieces on transgenderism and and the issues around that you know I know that's a very difficult thing to write about I mean and or even comment about when you look at JK Rowling what do you think of JK Rowling's experience first of all? It's funny. It's, so I'm, I'm, st- I'm stealing analysis here from my colleague Jay Nordlinger. Where he, he, he says, it's very, it's very easy for people to say, oh well, that person has loads of money, so it's not actually brave for them to take a stand. But actually, there's much more to life than money, and I think the fact that this is somebody who has built up a reputation and has been just so loved and admired by liberals and progressives. And very much one of them, I mean, if you look at her views on, on all sorts of things, uh, she knew, she knew what she was doing when she got involved in this fight. And she did so anyway. And I think that that genuinely is quite brave and, and I really admire her for it. She could have just sat this one out. She could have just said, you know what, I'll just from the sideline and see what's going on. But she said, no, actually, this is a totally reasonable and defensible position. And she actually originally weighed into this on Twitter in defense of a woman who'd been fired, who'd lost her job for saying completely reasonable common sense things on Twitter about you know, biological sex. And she said, look, I think it's not fair for people to be fired for this reason. So I'm, I'm just very admiring of, of her and very appreciative of her signaling that actually this position can be perfectly mainstream so i do i do i do think that i i've almost turned into like every time one of these things happens i'll i'll like write another piece explaining why no actually jk rowling is not a transphobe i mean 
<laughs> I don't know how many times I'll, I'll keep saying this, but they, they just won't, they won't give up. They just keep going for her head. I mean, the latest controversy I'm, I'm sure you saw was about her new crime novel that she published under her male pseudonym. But she um, published this crime novel and everybody, one reviewer at the Daily Telegraph suggested that a character who had one page of this 900 page novel in one page and one paragraph puts on a woman's coat and wig that this was a transvestite serial killer and the moral of the story this 900 page story was clearly that you could never trust a man in a dress no man in a dress in the book by the way but in any case this gets picked up by the lgbtq plus um propaganda website pink news and then this starts this big uproar on um on twitter and then you have these sort of middling celebrities of middling talent weighing in like jedward who are who once appeared on x factor and then like and evidently share a brain as well as a name saying things to her saying things that we should burn jk rowling's books <laughs> we should burn them because how progressive is that really yeah, look, we're obliged to say, even though they won't listen to us, we're obliged to say at this point that we are not transphobes. Neither you, you nor I, I suspect that we have we have friends who are have transgendered. Uh, I've interviewed a, a very brilliant transgendered woman on this podcast um, not so long ago. So let's put that one to bed, if you like. So, but so, what is the problem here? I mean, what is it? Why is it that we find ourselves? on the you know unpopular side of this argument, if you like? Well, it's, it's very simple. It's that there is a point at which your right to do what you please with your own body and so on and so forth cannot cross the, the line into demanding that other people say things that they do not believe to be true and which are clearly not true. And so the problem is, is that you, you talk about the, the transgender people who are who are in, in no way extreme, and, and it is important to differentiate between the activists and the people they pr- purport to represent. That is that is true. But what the activists are saying has to be met with determined opposition. What the activists are saying is that you can literally change your biological sex. You can literally change it. In fact, you don't, they're saying two contradictory things at once. You can literally change your biological sex. But not only that, your gender identity, your inner sense, your, your soul, if you will, de- determines what sex you already are. So you already are the sex you think you are, but you can change your body to match that sex. That you're assigned a sex at birth, and then after you are assigned the sex at birth by some whimsical god or, or careless doctor, and it turns out it was a mistake, that you can then override this with your gender identity. And actually, if you, if you don't even want to change your body, if you don't even want to change it, you don't have to, but you still need to be recognised for this inner sense that you have. So if you felt that you were transgender and you now want to be treated as a woman, you didn't. You wouldn't even need to really put on a dress or do anything. And so the problem becomes, well, if somebody claims that they're a woman, do we in law and in life accommodate that belief? Well, no, actually we don't. Now, of course, the, there's, a, there's a distinction to be made here. 
if if the point is that somebody is deeply unhappy and uncomfortable with their sex and would rather present as the opposite sex because psychologically that alleviates some of that suffering okay that's one thing and that is actually how transgender people were part of society before this became a big huge thing right was that it was worked out in relationships of mutual trust and respect and you you maybe if you're in the bathroom you're washing your hands you kind of double take because you know you know based on 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 facial structure and all the rest of it generally like 95 99% thing know if somebody's a man or a woman you maybe double take and if you if you do this internal risk assessment as a woman you think actually no this person seems fine just be polite and you get on with your day now when that was happening when transgenders and transsexualism first became a possibility you would kind of assume at that point that that person had had surgery and that person had had hormones and all the rest of it but the transgender umbrella is now so wide that it could cover, as I said before, somebody like yourself, who is just a man in man's clothing, who claims some identity and has to use the bathroom of his choosing. This is obviously not acceptable to mandate and give away the rights of women and say that that person has a right to be there and that no person is allowed to say, I'm sorry, it's actually, I feel uncomfortable. You know, mm. and so actually what it's done, this relentless aggressive push has actually harmed the relationship that trans people had with society because it's turned it into this big issue and it's made women really angry. And by saying that the top down, you're wanting to take away their rights, it's made them say, well, no, I don't want anybody. I don't want any man in my bathroom. I don't want any man claiming that he has a right to be in my women's team club, whatever, you know? And unfortunately, um, that's done a great deal of harm to, to everyone. It's it's really upset the whole the whole balance. So it's mm. just, uh, and it's it, the, the point I just have to keep returning to it is it's just that it's based on something that's not true, and it's based on something that's obviously not true. The whole point, and when this started, was that people had surgeries and hormones and wore clothing to alleviate very complicated psychological trauma and that they should be accommodated insofar as it's reasonable. Okay, I'm totally fine with that. I'm totally on board with that. But the insofar as it is reasonable and the accommodated while they present as the opposite sex is not what's being um, advocated. What's, what they're saying is these people are the sex and they have to be accommodated because anything less than accommodating them is an erasure of their existence and is not only that, is 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 possibly contributing to widespread suicide. I don't talk about how possible. this spills out into the political arena. So here in Australia, uh, Senator Claire Chandler in Tasmania has uh, made a speech the other week in, in the Senate uh, to say that women's sport should be preserved for biological women. And there's very good reason for that. There are studies that show that, particularly in contact sports like rugby, for instance, or even soccer, women are far more likely to be injured if they're playing against a biological man. I choose my words carefully. Somebody criticised me the other week, called me insensitive for talking about a transgendered biological man. I, I don't quite know how I'm supposed to describe it, but it does show the sensitivity around this. But on that issue of women's sports, so what happened was the Green Party in the Senate, of course, condemned Senator Chandler for her gross prejudice and insensitivity and so forth. The Labour Party on the, you know, the centre-left were just pretty much silent on it. And, and I think this is what's happening, isn't it? There's this great silence 
from people who consider themselves on the left particularly who would like to speak out about it but feel that they'll upset part of their constituency, a bit like possibly what's happening in Scotland. What do you think? Yeah, so first of all, I actually want to pick you up on something you said about sensitivity and language. I, I think there's, there's a very clear line to be drawn here. When you're having a political discussion, which is what we're having, then you have to use accurate and precise terminology. When you're having an interpersonal conversation, then you, you resort to good manners. So if I were talking to a person who was transgender, I would obviously use the pronouns, unless, unless this was in the context of political debate, I would obviously use pronouns and refer to them as they wish because that's the polite thing to do. But if you're having a conversation about what this actually comes down to, you have to use the language that best serves your argument. So I am I am at the point now, I'm, 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 at first when I waded into this minefield, I was very, very careful. I did the biological man as, or the male and the whatever. And now I'm like, no, I'm sorry. I actually, I actually can't do that because it doesn't serve my argument. I'll give you an analogy of why I think this is an important point. Can you imagine if there's a Christian and an atheist and they want to debate the existence of God, but that the atheist demands that throughout the entire debate, the Christian refers to him and all other atheists or all other Christians as children of God? Well, he would have to say, no, I'm sorry, I can't, I actually can't do that. Because if I do that, then I've already lost the debate before we even had it. So this is this is the problem is that it's actually it comes down the absolute nub of the issue is, is that you can't it well my position I, I don't dare to presume what yours is but my position is you cannot become the opposite sex and you are not the opposite sex because you feel that you are materially physically biologically that's just the truth that's as I think it's actually a fairly obvious truth because what was more likely that that your sex is is determined at birth and observed or that there's this mysterious gendered soul through some process of Cartesian dualism where there's a soul blip with the body that the soul then um, supersedes the, the, the body and determines what you truly, really are. And we're all supposed to just take your word for it. I mean, come on. That's just, <laughs> we're, living in, we're living in 2020. We don't, we don't believe in superstitions like that. I mean, you can, you're, you, you're free to, you know? So yeah. I think that the la the language thing is how they've done it. The language thing is they have they have um, used and exploited the fact that most people, most liberally minded people, um, myself included, the small L liberal, most liberally minded people don't want to offend people, don't want to upset people, don't want to hurt people, and are perfectly happy for people to live according to their superstitions or whatever makes them happy. That's fine. That's fine. So what they do is they suggest that if you in arguing your point, your political point, use language that precisely gets the point of what you're trying to argue for or against, you are being hateful and you ought to shut up and you ought to talk as we talk or you should really not be part of this debate. And I have a really serious problem with that. Look, I think what you say about language is very interesting. So what you're suggesting is if we, you know, as you naturally do, are you offended by that word? Okay, I'll use another. Are there any words? But in doing that, we actually succeeding ground gradually in the debate. Is that what's occurring? Yes, I think that's absolutely right. In fact, you know, this this actually came this came up for me. I made I made a decision with actually an individual, trans, a transgender individual who uh, is is um, and I and I I'm saying individual, not representative of all trans people, not representative of anyone other than this individual. And this individual was such an obvious bad actor. This individual was a bully and a cheat 
and a liar and so many other things. I'm not going to say who it is because I don't know. I don't want to get into legal trouble. But the, the point is, this individual, I just thought, you know what? I believe this person is a man. And I think it is directly relevant to the argument that this person is a man. Because if the people at home knew and could see clearly and straightforwardly that this is a man, they would be horrified and think, I can't believe that man's treating women like that. That's not acceptable, you know? And, and actually, the, the thing is, fundamentally, I believe that transgender women are men who do not like being men. And I am happy on a case-by-case -case basis individually to completely accommodate that and, and avoid as much as I can calling them men because that's upsetting. But in the context of a political argument, it is really important that I am as precise as I can be. And it's all the more important now that people are taking away your right to do that. People are being fired for saying what I just said. Lots of people would be fired. It would be considered this great blasphemy. Well, I'm sorry, but let's go back to my analogy. If the atheist cannot say, I don't believe you're a child of God, I believe you're a creature of evolution. If the atheist cannot say, I don't believe God exists, then you're not even having a debate. You're poking around the edges. You're gently tiptoeing and trying not to offend anyone. And maybe say, oh, well, maybe we're going a bit far here. Maybe we're, no, like that's not how a debate should work. And I, regardless of your, of your personal lived experience and all the rest of it, if you can't stand the heat, get out of the kitchen. If you, if you don't want to have the debate in frank terms because it offends you personally, you're not really the best person to be advocating your position because I cannot think of any other context in which like, somebody would be having a debate with someone and they would, say, they would say, well, actually, it personally offends me that you would say that. So, um, you know. Having ignited one Twitter storm. Let's try and ignite another one. Um, universities. I'm interested in your experience of universities, what's happening to them in America, the sense that there's a return to segregation, which, you know, was real in my lifetime. We thought we got rid of it from ever. Talk, talk on that subject. Sure. So universities are full of young people and young people um, are very confident and sure of what they think and don't really have very much experience. Um, and so this is not a very good combination for generating ideas, actually. And so normally what, what the idea of a university was you would go with your cocksure opinions and things about the world and all the rest of it, and you would meet people of different backgrounds and different viewpoints and different worldviews, and you would you would grow into a, a, into a more open-minded person, a more well-adjusted person, a person perhaps who is more prone to, to heterodoxy, at least to, to, to entertaining and seriously engaging with um, alternative views. Unfortunately, that's not what happens anymore. You go to campus and you, there's this huge, <clears throat> there's just huge pressure to conform to certain orthodoxies related to gender, race, identity. And if you don't conform to them, then you are assumed to be a bigot, a terrible, awful person. And, you know, the other thing about young people is not only are they um, prone to be very sure of their beliefs, they're prone to like really, really care about what other people think of them. Um, and so many adopt causes and the causes are the, the causes of the age. So these are 
anti-racism and anti-transphobia and gay rights and so on and so forth, all very fine and, and noble causes, but because they've never actually met somebody who even slightly disagrees with them on any of these points, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking of um, Coleman Hughes, who's now at the Manhattan Institute, who is himself a person of colour, okay, who just disagrees with the way that you interpret um, racism and the way that you solve it. So, you know, he doesn't buy into critical race theory, for instance. Well, they've never met somebody like Coleman Hughes. And so when somebody like Coleman Hughes, either Coleman himself or somebody maybe who's not black, suggests that actually I, I don't think that the country's intrinsically racist. I think that what's going on here is X, Y, or Z. There's, there's this massive reaction because they think that this person is the monster that they've been looking for their whole lives, that this monster, this horrible, evil bigot, and they just go nuclear. And it's and it's very it's very sad. It's very sad because um it's just it's just the complete opposite of what a university education is supposed to do. And it doesn't solve anything. I mean racism is a real problem. Bigotry is a real problem. There's many things that can be done to solving them, but you don't solve them like that. Um put my mind at rest or perhaps you can't but uh, I we always used to think of Scotland as a place where you know higher education had some real depth to it you know I think you know my day there was a four-year degree course there whereas you know in England where I lived at that time we did only three uh, and and that there was this great tradition coming out of the Scottish Enlightenment you know that was informing education there please tell me that it's still okay <laughs> Well, I mean, so my, my personal experience of Scotland um, is, I don't know if it's, it's particularly, I mean, first of all, it's anecdotal, but I don't know how useful it is in the sense that I was not actually particularly political at university. Uh, I was always very interested in ideas and culture and books and philosophy, but I wasn't really, um, I, wasn't, I wasn't writing about anything. I was, I was doing music and the arts and all my friends were wildly progressive. And they um, knew that I wasn't quite fully on board, but it just didn't really come up. Um, I think all, all of these things were going on and certainly it could affect your grades if you stepped too far out for out life. But it was really only when I went back to university in 2016 and Trump, I think, had a huge effect on this because universities started to take political positions on the president, which is not typically something that people would do and, and suggesting that the president is, is himself racist, um, which is, a, is an interesting thing we can explore, but, but really, I mean, to, for university to take that position is, is quite a statement. And so, I mean, I, I, I do think that the, the problem, the problem is, is serious. And I know that, that lots of people on, on the left and, and, and reasonable liberals on the left, they are conservatives going on about campus stuff again. I mean, I wish they'd shut up about that. It's not that big of a deal. Well, I think we're actually seeing that it is a big deal because people don't stay in campus forever. They go out into corporate America, they go out into the media and they get jobs and they determine what can and can't be published in the New York Times you know, as they move up the ranks and, and same with publishing. And so the lack of heterodoxy is a huge problem. I can't let you go, of course, without asking you about the election, forthcoming election in the, in the United States. You're in New York. I, I guess everybody there around you is probably predicting a Biden victory. But what what's your thoughts? I, I always uh, avoid, well, as much as I can, I avoid speculation. But 
it really it does kind of look if you just if you're a polls guy or polls gal then it does look like biden's on track to win the two things that caution me from from being too reading too much into that is first of all that well, what were the polls saying in 2016 right the second thing is i think that the democrats have made a strategic mistake on law and order in a lot of places now biden himself has been quite sensible in avoiding directly endorsing the more radical elements of the Black Lives Matter movement, sort of defunding the police and so on. But I think there's a general sense, really quite strong dissatisfaction across America with democratic leadership in cities where crime is just going through the roof. And there was a there was a similar thing with with obviously Nixon in 1968 um, with the with the law and order. Thing and there was a miscalculation. The progressives miscalculated the the public mood and public atmosphere. And by the time of the election, people were just they'd had enough. Really, they'd had enough of this nonsense. Um, so, I think that were it not for that, then it would be quite likely a Biden win. But I think, given that, I'm not actually so sure. I think it could go either way. Thanks very much, Maddie, for your conversation today. And thanks for everything you write in National Review, in Spectator and elsewhere. And it'd be good to have you back on Watercooler again sometime. Sure, sounds great. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to the Menzies Research Centre podcast from Sydney, Australia. If you'd like to join the growing number of people who are supporting our work, you can do so by going online and becoming a subscriber from just $10 a month. MenziesRC.org. I'm Nick Cater. Thank you for listening. Thank you.